We are back online. For those of you who watch by live stream, there was nothing wrong with your TV this morning. <laughs> Sorry about that, but uh, we had a video of one of our missionaries, and the material was very sensitive, and uh, they asked us that we did not live stream that. So welcome back if you're still here. Hope you didn't give up. <laughs> Okay, let's stand and sing Across the Lands. care for the dying. Jesus the mighty 
Spirit everywhere be found 
pray. Father, we know that we are not here by accident and we are here for the purpose of being lights in the dark world in which we live. And we need to be rescuing the perishing for many are lost and without Christ. And we might be the only lights that they'll ever see at work, in our neighborhoods, wherever we go, that we might be willing and ready to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for this beautiful day that you've given us. We know that this is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you, Father, for this ministry, this time of giving we do it because we love you and we desire to see you glorified through everything we pray in jesus name amen
Today's scripture reading is Psalm 19, the whole chapter. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Glory to his name, and that, of course, is what we need to do every day. Glory to his name. Down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name, glory to his name, glory to his name, there to my heart was the blood applied, glory to his name. I am so wondrously saved from sin, Jesus so sweetly abides within there at the cross where he took me in glory to his name glory to his name glory to his name there to my heart was the blood applied glory to Precious mountain that saves from sin. I am so glad I have entered in. There Jesus saves me and keeps me clean. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood. fountain so rich and sweet. Cast thy poor soul at the Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made complete. Glory to his name. Glory 
to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. You may be seated, Adam. Well, good morning, folks. I appreciated all the, the songs with the gospel focus. That was an encouragement to me. I, I love to hear songs that, that charge us to go out and, and present the gospel. So I'm glad to be here this morning. I'm thankful to Pastor Kurt for inviting me to come and be with you today. It is always a privilege to get to stand before a group of believers on a Sunday and bring the very word of God to them. So that is a thrill to me, and that is an awesome privilege. And, and you know what? You're not all strangers to my wife, Elizabeth, and me. Just Was that last week, Brad? I think it was last week. A couple weeks ago, we were at an IFCA convention, and we got to meet Brad and Karen Leitsky, and also Josiah. Is that right? Josiah. But I learned, Brad and Karen Leitsky, do you know where their hometown is? Where they're from? It's Wausau, and the church that they attended, Wausau Bible Church. But did you know that Brad grew up at Wausau Bible Church? So we've got some, some common friends there. In fact, his kindergarten Sunday school teacher is still there, and they happen to be a friend of ours. So, of course, I had to ask him, you know, tell me a good story about Brad. And you know what they, you know what they said? He was a good boy. <laughs> so you already know that. He's, he was a good boy. So I appreciate, I appreciate the common uh, friends that we have there. So go ahead and take, take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. And let me know if I need to move this mic down or something. Are we good? Okay. I hear a little bit of echo. Colossians chapter 2. Did you folks have about 70 degree temps a couple weeks ago? I guess it's been about a month ago or so. I thought spring was coming. We had that back in Wausau. On one of those warm days, I got to go downtown to the center of Wausau. I don't know if you've ever been there. They call it the 400 block. It's a great big green space, and people like to go down there and hang out. On, on warm days, but I went down there for a specific purpose. I went down there to strike up some gospel conversations with the folks that were out enjoying the warm weather, and I might be, I might be old-fashioned, but I like the old James Kennedy evangelism explosion questions. You know those questions? I'm getting some head nods. Good, I'm in a good place. You know those questions. What are they? Are you 100% sure that you're going to heaven? And then the other question, you might stand before the Lord and say, if you died tonight and you're standing before God, he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What might you say to him? You ever ask somebody those questions? Unfortunately, what do you often hear? What are people trusting in to get them to heaven? Their good works, especially up here, and I think it's still conservative, kind of, are there morals in this part of the country? Maybe there are. Oftentimes, in places of the world like this, people put a lot of confidence in their goodness, you know, their good works, the idea that, well, you know, if I do good enough, surely God's going to let me into heaven. You know what I heard that day down in Wausau when I was asking people those questions? Good works. You know, I took care of my mom when she was sick, or I serve here, and I take care of my neighbor, or I've, I've donated. Maybe... They're a member in a church, and maybe they're really involved. You know, some are baptized. Well, I've been baptized. Surely I'm going to heaven. I take communion. I'm involved in six different ministries at the, at the Bible church. That means I'm going to heaven, right? You know what? I have asked those 
Kennedy evangelism explosion questions to literally thousands of people, and I have never heard anybody say, I'm getting to heaven because I'm a bad person. <laughs> Nobody has ever said that. It's always because they're good, but then they fill in the definition of what good is. Everybody's got their own definition of good. You ever wonder why that is? Why do so many people in this world think they're going to get to heaven because they're good enough? They're doing enough good works. You know, I understand the spiritual side that Satan has blinded their eyes. They cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, right? They need the gospel. They need the Holy Spirit to illumine them so they can understand it. But what, is, what do you think is the reasoning in the unbeliever's mind? Doesn't that kind of make sense? You know, if you want to be in a good place, surely you've got to earn your spot there. And that's how a lot of people think. They think, if I'm going to be in heaven one day, I'm going to have to earn my rights to be in heaven. So I need to do enough good to make sure that my, my good outweighs, outweighs my bad. You know, that sounds logical. That sounds reasonable. Furthermore, it even sounds Christian, doesn't it? It even sounds, it even sounds Christian. Doing good deeds. Having good morals like loving your family and serving, being baptized, taking communion, all of those, all of those good things, things that we would agree with, surely that wouldn't be the basis for sending someone to an eternal hell. Well, Satan is an excellent counterfeiter, folks. Satan is an excellent counterfeiter. He's going to make his schemes look as much like the original as he can. So he's going to use Christian terminology. He might say true things about Jesus. He might use Bible verses with his schemes. But if a person is trusting in a way of salvation, if they are trusting in a philosophy of life that does not solely depend on Jesus Christ, it does not give Jesus Christ his proper place, it does not view Jesus as supreme and sufficient then those are lies that lead a person to an eternal hell. And that is sad. In this world, your neighborhood, maybe your family, this whole city is filled with people who are believing lies, who are being deceived by the schemes of Satan. And, you know, his lies don't just lead unbelievers to hell. They also can lead believers astray. They can lead believers astray. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You know, that never stops being our aim as followers of Jesus, to remain devoted devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, continuing to walk in him in the same way, in the same way that we received him, not turned aside from our calling, not deceived or distracted from this teaching or that empty promise that the world has to offer. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning from our verses in the book of Colossians. This morning, we're going to take a look at man's ideas and Christ's sufficiency and we're going to see six reasons. It's up on the board there. Six reasons to reject philosophy. And we're going to see those reasons as we study verse by verse through Colossians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. So let's read verses 8 to 10. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. 
For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Those are some glorious verses. We're going to dig into the details of those. But before we do, I want to put these verses in their context. So where has Paul just come from in the book of Colossians? Where is he going? And how do these verses fit into this? So just a really quick flyover of the book of Colossians. You've got it in front of you. Look back at chapter 1. Chapter 1, Paul begins with some thanksgiving for the good report. So there's a good report that came from Epaphras from the Colossians. And then he has that lengthy prayer. He's asking God that they'd be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. As we come into chapter 2, we start to get into those errors and the false teaching that the Colossians are going to be facing. So he tells them about the struggle that he has for them so that they might have the true knowledge of Jesus. But look at verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. Paul writes, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. So the believers in Colossae are going to be facing deceivers. And Paul wants them to be prepared. And as chapter 2 continues, that's what he's doing. And we're going to see how he is going to be preparing those Colossian believers. And he does it in two different ways. First, he tells them what to look out for. So he's going to tell them what the false teachers are going to be doing. And he's going to give them three warnings. And our verses this morning are actually the very first warning in chapter 2. But the other way that Paul is going to prepare the Colossian believers for the false teachers is by telling them the positive side. He's going to remind them of the truth. He's going to remind them of what they received in Jesus Christ, and he's going to call them, basically, to continue in that same way that you began. So that's chapter 2. You move into chapter 3. That's when we get really practical. So hopefully uh, you don't just spend all your time in chapters 3 and 4, right? You, you begin with the doctrine in chapters 1 and 2, but chapter 3 and 4, we've got the put-off, put-on commands, instructions to husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. And then chapter 4, he's, he's got a lengthy personal section. So our verses this morning, verses 8 to 9, 8, 9, and 10, we are just starting to get into the Colossian heresy. That's what our verses cover. So let's see what this empty philosophy looked like, and what the Colossians were to cling to so that they wouldn't be led astray by this. So verse 8, See to it that no one takes a captive through philosophy and empty deception. See to it. So this is Paul's first warning. This is an imperative. So this is a command, and it means to, it means to look carefully. It means to watch out or beware. Paul is telling these Christians in Colossae that you need to be on guard because there are people out there who want to take you captive. That's what the verse says. They want to to carry you away as prey or carry you away as plunder, as a victor would do to his defeated enemy. But think about this for a minute. Didn't we just say that Paul rejoiced in chapter 1 at the good report that he had gotten from the believers in Colossae. You know, this is a healthy church. So this is a church that is known for the love that they have for one another. So they have a good reputation. Paul praised God for that. So how could it be that this healthy church that has a good testimony, they're on the right track, in fact, they're even known for that, how could this church be led astray by false teachers? Look at how the verse continues. How's it going to happen? 
through philosophy and empty deception. So false teachers are going to lure, lure believers away from the truth with deception. Do I have any fishermen in here this morning? Surely we've got some fishermen. Not a single, okay, I got one. We're in Wisconsin. Surely we've got some fishermen in Wisconsin. So, fishermen, if you were going to lure a fish away and, uh, you know, and try and catch it, would you just go out there in your boat with a great big bear hook and just throw it out there and yell, here, fishy, fishy, you know, I think Bert and Ernie did that. No, you wouldn't do that, right? That's not going to, that's not going to fool the fish. Did you know fishermen were deceivers? <laughs> fishermen were deceivers. That's what they're doing. They are baiting that fish. They are putting something attractive, something that the fish wants. They're baiting the hook, and maybe it's a natural bait. Maybe it's an artificial bait. The best artificial bait looks like the real thing. So there's something that looks good to the fish. The fish wants it, so it goes after it. But does it get something good? It doesn't get something good. No, it gets hooked. It gets carried away, you know. So like a fish that takes the bait, a believer can be led astray by philosophy, by this empty deception. So false teachers are going to try and use empty deception to get you to take the hook. And what they're going to offer to deceive you isn't going to look that bad. Right? If a false teacher walked in here and shouted, I'm a false teacher, you know, follow me away to destruction, that's not going to fool anybody, right? Nobody is going to follow after that person. They're going to offer something that you could easily be tricked by. That is why Paul tells this healthy church, these healthy believers that are doing well in Colossae, to be on the lookout, be watchful. That verb that starts verse 8, see to it, is in the present imperative. So it means this is something that is to constantly characterize these believers, constantly characterize them. This is to be an attitude, an attitude of discernment. So that ought to be the habit of every born-again believer is that you are constantly watching, constantly on the lookout, constantly beware of false teaching that might infiltrate itself among this body. And you know, a lot of people today don't think that that attitude is very loving, <laughs> you know, to constantly be on the lookout for, for false teachers, always discerning, always comparing what is, what is being taught to Scripture. And you better be doing that with everything I say today, and you better be doing everything Kurt says today too, right? The Scripture is our authority. So people look at, that, at folks like us who are in IFCA church, right? We still believe in the Word of God, right? We still believe that it has authority, that it has power, that it is sufficient, that it is inerrant. We believe those things. And as believers in the very Word of God, we hold to the fundamentals of the faith. Right? God has graciously given to them. We believe that they can be understood. We believe that his word should be revered, that it should be proclaimed, that it should be defended. And people out there look at us and they think we ought to be more open to the newest and latest and greatest modern teachings and insights of scholarship. You know, people, people that think that way will say things to, to folks like us. You need to get with the times. <laughs> you know, you're old-fashioned. You don't still believe that old book, do you? Yes, I do still believe that old book. It's the very Word of God. Absolutely, I believe it. But they, they use words like scholarly, and they say, well, that's not the scholarly way to interpret it. You know, you don't still believe that homosexuality is a sin. You say, well, the Scriptures proclaim that it is. I do believe that. So then they start to Maybe they encourage us to read something different or read a different book or, you know, maybe follow this, follow this teacher or preacher. 
You know, he's got this huge church and everybody loves him and, and it's growing. He's got an awesome philosophy and ministry. I hear a lot of that stuff. I don't know if you do, but I hear a lot of that stuff. You know what they're doing? They're dangling the bait in front of my nose. They want me to take the bait, right? Those things don't sound that bad. Surely you don't want to be viewed as narrow-minded and, and old-fashioned. Do not be deceived by the empty deceptions that the world is going to offer to believers in a healthy church, right? Be on your guard. Have this attitude of discernment. So see to it, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. So let's take a little closer look at the, at the bait that these deceivers are going to offer. So verse 8 continues. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. So this word philosophy just means a love of wisdom. So it is a compound word made up of philos and Sophia, philos, Sophia. So the word itself does not necessarily have to be referring to anything negative. You know, some in church history thought that everything philosophy related was wrong, so they just cast it all out. But we need to be careful with that because the word just means to love wisdom. Does the scriptures anywhere tell us to love wisdom? Amen. Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4 says, Acquire wisdom, love her, and she will watch over you. So as with any subject, we always need to define our terms based on the context that they're in. So philosophy in and of itself doesn't have to be a bad thing. But how about in verse 8 in Colossians chapter 2? Philosophy here is a bad thing. <laughs> so it's not referring to a love for understanding things of God and, and the scriptures, which are, is true wisdom. Rather, this is a reference to the speculations and the ideas of man, the traditions of man. So things that have been passed on through man. This is not God's wisdom. So that makes this then a false wisdom. This is a love. This philosophy is a love of false wisdom. So it's a seeking after something that is futile, something that is vain and empty. Look at how verse 8 continues. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty Deception, that word empty means vain. It means futile, fruitless, without usefulness or success. It is void of value. That word deception speaks of something that entices or seduces. So think of that combination. You've got something that draws you in, something that is attractive, something that looks good, but it is a false promise. There is nothing there. It is empty. It is vain. In fact, it's worse than that. It was a trap. It was a trap to draw you in in order to take you captive. It's important to see in this verse that empty deception is describing the philosophy, so this is not describing two separate threats, and we see that from the syntax. So these two nouns are objects of one preposition. Oh no, grammar. Does anybody like grammar? Nobody likes grammar. But we believe in the historical grammatical interpretation of scripture, so somebody's got to like grammar. I like grammar. <laughs> There's no definite article here. When the Greeks did this, so it doesn't say through the philosophy and the empty deception. It just says through philosophy and empty deception. When Greeks did that, they were linking two things together. They weren't making a distinguishing mark between the two. So what that means is we're, we're talking about one threat. So the empty deception is describing the philosophy. So the philosophy, it's the philosophy that is a hollow shell here. It is the philosophy that has the appearance of something valuable, 
but on closer inspection, it is found to be worthless and empty. There's nothing there. It was all a lie. When I was studying this, it reminded me of something that the Allies did in preparation for D-Day. Are you familiar with the inflatable tanks that they used? Have you read about this? So to help mask the final preparations that were being made for the D-Day invasion, the Allies replaced real tanks with dummy tanks as they were moving the resources from their holding areas. These inflatable decoys made the Germans think the Allies had more tanks than they actually did. Look at that. That is not a real tank. Sure looks like a real tank. That's an inflatable tank. What would happen if you walked up to that huge inflatable tank that looked so promising and so powerful and you took a little needle out and you just poked it? It would deflate, right? That's because it's hollow. It's a deception. There is nothing there. That's not the real thing. The real tank is someplace else. And that is just like what the false teachers are offering with their philosophy. It has the appearance of power. It has the appearance of truth, but it's actually hollow. (laughs) It is empty. It's a fraud. It has no substance. The actual truth is found someplace else in Jesus Christ. That is where the actual truth is found. A couple weeks ago, I was, I was spending some time just thinking about philosophy and doing some reading on it. And I was online on the internet, and I came across a philosophy forum. I don't recommend going to these, but all that is, a bunch of philosophers share their thoughts online. So I did some reading on there, and First off, it was very sad. That's what it was. I came across one topic of conversation. A person asked the question on this forum, have any philosophers here suffered from depression as a result of philosophy? And then there were several responses. There were several discussions trying to answer that question. So listen to some of the answers. And these are what the philosophers answered on that site. One man wrote, I have struggled with depression and other mental health issues, and I have at times felt that my philosophical bent has had a lot to do with it. By choosing to dig deeper into philosophy, I refine my sensibilities, and in this process, though I may not shed all my demons, I escape the suffering that particular instances of ignorance cause me. So that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound too bad, but he continues. It's cyclical, though, because as I delve deeper... I find the same old troubles just framed in more and more refined ways, and I am certainly skeptical as to whether or not there is an end to this cycle. Another man wrote, I went through about 10 years of clinical depression. The process of questioning everything can turn a person inwards, and this can lead to a depressive episode, especially if core values are questioned and then found to be something you cannot maintain or defend. And a final one. Another philosopher wrote, to be honest, it's just depressing that there doesn't seem to be any answers to the questions I set out to answer in terms of ethics and not knowing what's the best course of action. It's like now my eyes have been opened to the realms of human behavior and the futility of life. That's sad. That's sad because people are being deceived, right? That is the facade of philosophy, Folks have this hope, this thought that in, you know, seeking man's wisdom, they're going to be able to find an answer to their problem. But what do they find? Nothing. 
vanity. They find emptiness. It's fruitless. There's nothing there. <laughs> the philosopher has been described as a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that doesn't exist. I don't know if you've heard that description of a philosopher before. So the world's promise of enlightenment and wisdom is a hoax. Apart from Christ, those things are impossible, impossible to find. So Christian. So think about this. What's the application here? Christian, if you sit here today as a believer, your eyes have been opened to the light of the gospel. You understand something of the treasures of the wisdom that are hidden in Jesus Christ. Why in the world... Would you, one who has received the gospel, one who believes the word of God, why would we turn from the true wisdom to false wisdom? Why would we be deceived and taken in by the false promises that the world has to offer? You know, that's foolishness when you think about it in those terms. So a believer, see to it. (laughs) Be on guard. Beware. Keep your eyes open. Do not be led astray by false teaching, do not turn from the true wisdom that you have received in Jesus Christ to the false wisdom that the world is offering. So that's the first reason to reject this philosophy. And I put philosophies in in quotes there because the word itself isn't necessarily wrong, but this philosophy is false wisdom. It's a deceptive lie. That's the first reason to reject it. Continue with verse 8. Where does this false wisdom come from? So where do these teachers get their material? So does it come from God? Is it according to Christ or according to the scriptures? No, what does verse 8 say? This philosophy and empty deception is according to the tradition of men. It is according to the tradition of men. So tradition is just a custom or a belief that's been passed down after generation after generation. And maybe you have some traditions in your family, and maybe your parents did it, and the their parents before did it, and the parents before did it. You don't know why. Do you know why you still do some of the things that your family does? <laughs> Maybe you don't. It just kind of it's assumed to be true, and it's been passed on year after year after year. But you do know if you stop doing that tradition, somebody might get upset. So you can't stop doing that tradition, even though you don't know why you still do it. You know, those are all characteristics of, of traditions in general, but the tradition here is different. At least I hope it is than than the one that you might have in your family. So this tradition is referring to something that is superseding something that God has said. So turn over to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, we're going to see an example of this type of tradition in verses 1 to 3. Matthew chapter 15. This is a type of tradition that is being talked about here in Colossians. And this might actually be the specific tradition that Paul has in mind here, but we'll talk more about that in a bit. Matthew chapter 15 in verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In Mark chapter 7 verse 8, Jesus charges the Pharisees with leaving the commandment of God and holding fast to the tradition of men. So Jewish legalism here. Jewish legalism is a belief or a custom that did not find its source in God. So the Pharisees had left God's commandments in order to hold fast to their own traditions. 
What they were doing, they were elevating man's ideas above God's ideas. And that's really the root issue here. That's the root issue. It's, it's the fact that man's traditions, man's authority, if he has any, is superseding God's. So that's what makes this such a big deal. That's what makes this tradition so bad. And in fact, this is something that all false teaching has in common. So all false teachers, their philosophy originates with man. Okay, it originates in the imagination of sinful, finite man, and not with God. So again, believer, one who has been enlightened to the truths of Scripture, one who has been redeemed and made new, one who has understood the gospel, and you've been freed from your sin and slavery to Satan, your eyes have been opened to truth, why in the world? Would we turn from that divine light, from that living and active and powerful, authoritative word of God to something that finds its origin in man, that finds its source in the imagination of sinful man, and it follows a line of contradiction after contradiction after contradiction? You know, why in the world would a believer do that? That, again, that is foolishness, and that is reason number two to reject I might be one ahead over there. Reason number two to reject this philosophy, it's because it's a false authority. Its origin is not God. Its origin is according to the tradition of man, and that's its source. Well, verse 8 continues, and we move from its origin now to its content, to its content. So Colossians chapter 2, you can turn back to verse 8. So this philosophy, these, these lies are according to man's tradition, but it's also according to the elementary principles of the world. So that statement is probably a reference to the practices themselves. So this is probably a reference to what the false teachers were promoting. So the external, physical things that they were saying, if you do this, it's going to increase your spirituality. Look down at verse 20 of Colossians chapter 2. You see the same word used again. Verse 20 says, If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men? So that word, elementary principles, it comes from a Greek word, stoikia, which is a word that can mean several different things based on its context. It can refer to spiritual beings. So false religions used that word in this way. It can refer to the basic elements of the universe, so like matter and atoms. It can refer to elementary sounds or letters like the ABCs. So this all depends on the context. Or it can just refer to the basic elements of knowledge. So first principles or rudiments. I don't know if anybody's using a copy of the Bible that has the word rudiments there. Maybe that's what you see in your copy. So what is Paul talking about here? You know, what are these rudiments? What are these elementary principles in this context? That is a very good question. (laughs) It's a hard one to answer. For whatever reason, the specifics of just exactly what the false teachers were teaching or the origin of that has kind of been lost to history. So you can can go through that description in Colossians chapter 2, and you can read all those characteristics and And people think maybe it was Gnosticism, maybe it was Greek philosophy, maybe it was a local mystery religion, 
maybe it was Jewish mysticism. So just precisely exactly what these false teachers were instructing the people to do, the details of that are kind of, are kind of unknown. So we're not, we're not fully certain of the identity of these false teachers. So when we come to this verse, which says, you know, what they were teaching was according to the elementary principles of the world, there's a couple reasonable possibilities that people can, can come to as to what they, what they thought they're talking about. I want to share just a couple with you. So one, interpret elementary principles here to be in reference to an ancient mystery religion. So it would be kind of like that first use of the word. So some pagan Gentile religions thought that the world was a really dangerous place. It was filled with all sorts of spirits, and specifically the star spirits. So every star had a spirit, so you had to be really careful that you don't upset the star spirits. So there, was, there were these false teachers at that time, that's, that's what they believed, this mystical religions that said, okay, you've got to get the star spirits on your side. So here is this secret practice, or here is this greater divine power that you can worship. So they promoted things like that. So maybe, maybe there were people in Colossae that were telling lies like that to the believers in the church in Colossae, and they might have been saying that, hey, there's, there's freedom from these star spirits if you will just do this, if you will just practice this practice. And today that might, might sound a little funny, you know, star spirits, but you know what's still around? And still in the newspaper, astrology. You know, it's, it's not too different. It's the same, same basic idea. You know, there's some mystical power out there, and you might be able to get that mystical power on your side. So that could be what is being talked about here with the elementary principles. But a second reasonable interpretation here is that it could just be Jewish legalism. So turn over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And we can actually see this very same word in Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. So there's our word, elemental things, that same word as stoichia back in Colossians. Look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. So in this context, Paul, Paul is talking about the Mosaic law. Right? He's talking about traditions that developed out of the law. So here it would be like... He is saying this so-called philosophy is basically going back to spiritual kindergarten, like the really basic stuff, the elemental things. You know, a religion that's kind of based on this approach to God, that if I observe this commandment and I do this, you know, then I'll have a right relationship with God. That might be what's being talked about in Colossians. So turn back there, Colossians chapter 2. So Jewish legalism, and this idea that we have to keep these commandments in order to be pleasing to God. If you're back to Colossians 2, whether it is the first, that Gentile paganism, or it is a form of Jewish legalism or mysticism, you know what? The problem, the problem is the same. Because what the false teachers were doing is they were promoting a practice, some sort of external action that you could do in order to increase your spirituality. And this practice was not based on Jesus Christ. 
So whatever the specifics of their teaching was, it had this common thought. Jesus Christ wasn't sufficient, and you need something else. He's not enough. You've got to add something to it. So in this tradition of men, whether it is a religious practice like circumcision or abstaining from food and drink or treating the body severely or keeping festivals and Sabbaths, it was a fleshly approach exalting really man in order to have a a better or closer or more spiritual relationship with God. And you know what? That is really what all religions apart from Christianity have in common. There is some man element to it. There is some physical element to it. There is this, this idea of good works. If I do this, I'm going to get that. I need to do this in order to appease my God. I need to do that in order to have a right relationship with, with my God. Think about even within the realm of, of Christianity. You know, how many, I hate to call them Christian religions, but how many beliefs under the umbrella of Christianity would fall into that category. They might say, well, you know, Jesus is good, but you must, you must do this other thing. You must be baptized in order to be saved, or you must do good works, or you must abstain from meat or caffeine, or you must abstain from this practice or that practice, or you have to pay penance. You have to be good enough. You have to be good enough to get into heaven. Those are elementary principles. Those are principles that do not depend on Jesus Christ. Those views, that philosophy does not exalt Jesus to his proper place. They're depending on something else. So that's what Paul is saying here. He's telling them to not be deceived by anything like that. And I trust that we're not deceived here today, right? Aren't we glad that, you know, if you've heard the gospel, that God opened your eyes to that? You know, are you confident that here at Emmanuel Bible Church that you believe the truth? that you're not being led astray by your teachers. How do you know that's true? What would you have to have over here that stands outside of every human being in order to know that you have the truth? What would you have to have? The divine revelation? We have the Word of God. That's why the Word of God is so, so very important. Our truths, our beliefs... They're not just based on Bible church traditions, right? They're based on the very word of God. Look at the text. Look at what Paul says next. Verse 8. Verse 8 ends, it says, so this, this teaching, what the, what the deceivers have, it's according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. That which is according to Christ is the truth. So there is this standard of measure. That's why we are to be Bereans. It's because every time we hear a teacher stand up, we have the truth from God. We can measure it. Is it according to Christ? Christ becomes central to all of this. So it doesn't matter if a church did something the same way for 100 years. It doesn't matter if everybody on the face of the planet thinks that such and such is a way to heaven. Is it according to Christ? That is our standard of measure that is objective, and it goes beyond any teaching of any man. So again, we come back to the authority, the authority of the very word of God. So it doesn't matter what man's ideas or traditions are. It matters what God has said. Is it according to Christ? And that statement for Paul here in Colossians 2 is going to be a turning point. So now Paul is going to move from the negative side to the positive side. And he is going to give us three more reasons 
that we have to reject philosophy. And each of these reasons are, are positive ones. They all have to do with Jesus. Look at verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. So a fourth reason, a fourth reason, believer, that we have to reject philosophy. It is the person, the person of Jesus Christ in him. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus Christ is the God-man. There's a couple words that the Greeks used for this word for deity. One of them they used to just refer to divine things, and you find that word in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where we're talking about the nature, uh, creation. It says God's divine nature is clearly seen in his creation. And what that word there means is that it is just uh, God's characteristics, his divine characteristics are visible in that realm. The word used here for deity in Colossians chapter 2 is different. This one is a word that is more, more direct. So this isn't a deity that just pertains to God. This is a deity that is communicating the fact that the very essence, the very essence of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. So this is a very direct proclamation of the deity of Jesus Christ, as clear and as direct as any other verse in the scripture. So Jesus does not just contain divine attributes. He is divine. He is deity. And that verb for dwell is in the present tense. Why is that significant? Because it denotes a permanent residence. And this is fascinating to think about. And so many beliefs out there get the nature of Jesus Christ wrong. So it's so important that you get the nature of Jesus Christ correct. So what's that mean? In bodily form, in bodily form, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the full essence of deity dwelt in that bodily, in that physical body. He was crucified. He was raised from the grave. And the fullness of deity continues to dwell in that body, in that physical form. God the Father doesn't have a physical form. The Holy Spirit doesn't. But God the Son does. And all the fullness of what God is dwells in him. So Jesus Christ is 100% God, and he is 100% man. He is the God-man. That is his person. Continue with verse 10. There's actually a play on words in this verse, and maybe... Some of your translations pick it up. I think I've got it up here in the NIV. So Colossians chapter 2, verses, I've got both verses 9 and 10. Look at these together. See if you can see the play on words. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. So that's the same word for full in verses 9 and 10. So all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. Believer you're in Christ, thus you have been made full. Maybe you have the word complete. So that word full or that word complete in your Bible, we need to say, say a word about this because that was a word that had significance to the heretics in the early church. So this was a word that was important to them. It was a word that was a part of their teaching. Specifically, in Gnostic literature, they used that word fullness. The Greek word is pleroma. They used it to refer, now listen to this, to the totality of the divine powers and attributes 
And these powers and attributes were supposedly distributed among the various emanations. What in the world does that mean? I don't know, but I'll try and explain it. So the Gnostics, I don't know if you've learned anything about the Gnostics, but Gnostics taught that matter was evil. So the physical things were evil, and the spirit world was where God was, and that was good. So since God is spirit, and he is good, and the physical matter in the world is evil, God can't have anything to do with it. So they created this this series of emanations, and the emanation is basically like an angel. So they said, you know, God's not going to touch the physical world. So there's these emanations that come out from God, and they're kind of tiered, and they're staggering, and they come down until eventually you get to the point where you get this angel who's so far away removed from God that he's lowly enough to actually create the physical world. So now what the Gnostics then taught is that, you know, all of those emanations, all of those angels, you know, those are things that are worthy of our worship, right? So we need to be worshiping them. And there's this dichotomy between the spirit and the physical realm. So that's, that's basically Gnosticism, the foundational teaching of it. What's interesting is that that entire series of emanations, so all of those spiritual beings between God and man was known as the Pleroma in their teaching. So that was the fullness in their teaching. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Look at how Paul uses this word. Colossians 1, 19. It was a father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. We just read it. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you believer, you've been brought to fullness. So in direct contrast to the heretical teaching, which would say, you know, you need to share divine honors with all of these angels between God and man, Paul says no. (laughs) All the fullness is found in Jesus Christ. Paul affirms that. So there are no other mediating agents. You can't get any fuller than Jesus Christ. And believer in him, in him you are full. You have everything that you need for life and godliness. Look at verse 10. Do you notice that's in the past tense in your Bible? Mine mine translates it, you have been brought to fullness, and maybe your copy of God's word says you are complete or you are full. That's important because we're not talking about some future point in time when you're glorified and you reach this fullness. Paul is communicating here that today, believer, in Jesus Christ, you are full. You have everything you need. It doesn't mean you're deity. It doesn't mean that you're sinless, but it means you have everything that you need for life and godliness. You don't need to look somewhere else. You don't need the latest book. You don't need the latest philosophy. You don't need the latest self-help podcast. You have the Word of God. You have the Holy Spirit. You have everything that you need to live the life that God wants you to live, to live a life that is honoring to Him. Jesus Christ is sufficient Christ is supreme. That is a theme you see again and again and again in Colossians. So that is the fifth reason that you have, believer, to reject, to reject false wisdom. It's the fact that everything has been supplied to us for maturity in Jesus Christ. That's his provision, his provision. And then the sixth and final reason that we have this morning from Colossians chapter 2 to reject philosophy. Verse 10 concludes... And he is the head over all rule and authority. This is his position, his position. Jesus Christ is in a supreme position. Jesus Christ is over all, all rule 
and authority. And ruling authority here is a reference to spiritual beings. In fact, six different times in the New Testament, these two words, Paul uses these two words together, rule and authority, and they are in reference to spiritual powers. He does it earlier in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. You know, that is so often the, the tendency of man is to put something other than Jesus Christ between him and God, whether it is a church office, whether it is a, a practice, an ordinance, some intermediary, an angel, whatever it is, that is one of the schemes of Satan, is to tell you there's got to be somebody between you and God. That's not the teaching of Scripture. Jesus Christ is the head. Look at that word all in verse 10. You know what that word all means? It means all. It means without exception. So there is, there is no one. There is nothing. Jesus Christ is head over all, all angelic creatures. He rules over all the spirit world as well as the physical world. He is sovereign. He is the Lord. There is nothing that is over him. Look down, look down at verse 18 in chapter 2. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. So who is the only mediator? It is Jesus Christ. Who is the head? Who's the creator of the angels? It is Jesus Christ. You know, so why would somebody go to the ministers of the king, when we have access to the king, right? Why would you go to the creation when you can go to the very creator? So don't be preoccupied with angels when you can enjoy fellowship with the one who created them and who rules over them. So that's the sixth reason why the Colossians and why you and I ought to reject false wisdom, reject what is being offered to us. It's because of Jesus Christ's position. There's none above him. There is none more powerful than he. All rule, power, and authority belongs to him. So we must know Jesus. You must know this Jesus Christ. You must know your Savior, his person. He's fully God and fully man. You must know his provision in him. We have all that we need for life and godliness, and we must know his position, that he is the head over all, all rule and authority. Because if you know those things, if you know well, and you love the Lord Jesus, why would you be led astray? Why would you be deceived by these lies that promise something more or better than Jesus? Nothing like that exists. Listen to, to Charles Spurgeon on, on this topic. He writes, Arise, believer, and behold, the Lord Jesus yoking the whole of his divine Godhead to the chariot's of salvation. How vast is his grace, how firm his faithfulness, how unswerving his immutability, how infinite his power, how limitless his knowledge. All these are by the Lord Jesus made the pillars of the temple of salvation. His wisdom is our direction, his knowledge, our instruction, his power, our protection, his justice, our surety, his love, our comfort, his mercy, our solace, and his immutability, our trust. Do you know that, Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? Have you been made new? If not, if you sit here today and you are not 100% sure that you're going to heaven when you die, settle it right now. The gospel 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That is the news that we are all sinners, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while you were a sinner, Jesus died for you. He took your penalty on the cross. He paid that price, a price that would take you in eternity in hell. Christ paid it. And he rose from the grave, and he's alive today, and now God offers that sacrifice as a gift. Will you receive what Christ has done for you? Recognize that when he hung on the cross, he was paying your price. And the scriptures say, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You shall be saved. Your eyes will be open to the truths of Scripture. You'll be redeemed, you'll be forgiven, you'll be promised eternal life and that inheritance in heaven that will not pass away or fade away. So I trust that you know the Lord, but if you don't, do not wait. Do not wait another day. Settle settle that right now with God. So here's your homework. I'm almost done. Hear and heed. I I like that phrase, hear and heed. We come to church on Sundays, we hear the word taught. But do we just hear it? We do it, right? We learn these things to live these things. So it's important to me in my own walk and then in the lives of you folks that when we hear these truths, we then take the time to think about how am I going to apply this? How am I going to heed these truths? So I summed it up with two two points here. Look out. (laughs) Look out for false teachers. That's the command in verse 8. See to it. So the command is to look out. Look out for false teachers. Be examining what you hear to determine if it's a false wisdom coming from a false authority, promoting a false practice. But that's not all you need to do. You also need to look in the Word of God. (laughs) The more you're in the Scriptures, the better you know the Lord Jesus Christ, His person and His work. That is your foundation. That is your anchor. That will keep you from being led astray. So you've got to know the Lord. You've got to know truth. The better you know truth, the better you're going to be able to identify a lie and deception. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he has yoked the whole of his divine Godhead to the chariot of your salvation, believer. Do you believe that? So let's continue in him. In the same way that you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, continue to walk in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gospel that saves. You have done a work for each person here this morning. And for any who does not know you, Lord, I pray that even now in this moment they might place their trust in you and know that their sins are forgiven, God, and begin that new life of faith, a life following you, loving you, serving you. God, we rejoice as your children that we enjoy fellowship with you and also, Lord, with your saints that you have placed us among, that we can be a part of the body serving you and fellowshipping together. Lord, we praise you for the word you have given. You have told us so much truth. And that truth is our guide, it is our anchor, it is our hope. And you've given us a spirit to be able to understand those truths and put them into practice. So I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to better understand who you are. And through that knowledge, Lord, be on guard. Be aware of what we hear, what we're taught. And I just pray that you would bless this body. Lord, strengthen them, encourage them, help them to be a beacon of light in this city. Lord, give them boldness to proclaim the truth. Lord, give them unity of mind and purpose I'm so thankful for your work and these believers here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Let's stand and sing Sanctuary. We're going to sing it through twice, right? Yep, okay. <clears throat> Tonight at 5.30, flock group downstairs here at church. You are dismissed.